with you guys. I've got a friend. His name uh, is Johnny Latore. Uh, we call him Johnny B. And Johnny B went to grad school at Moody the same time that I did, and he became a pastor the same year that I became a pastor here. So we kind of have a connection that way. But but he's a he's a great guy. And he gets an opportunity every once in a while to go and speak at Moody Chapels. He does a lot of spoken word stuff. He's gotten into the music end of things. He's actually a very gifted lyricist. And so he came into Moody at one point in time. And as he came into Moody, um, somebody saw him. And they just went right up to him. It was a freshman. And he says, hey, are you Stephen Furtick? And I don't know if you know Stephen Furtick of Elevation Church. If we have the picture, can we just go back? So that's the student. And he shared it with me. And and John Latore, this guy is 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 famous. He's written a lot of songs. Uh, he's written a lot of sermons. Obviously, he has a book on the New York bestseller list. Uh, uh, New York Times bestseller or New York bestseller? Yeah, I'll get it right. Um, and and so he says, "Are you Stephen Furtick?" And John just looks at him and he says, "Yeah, I am. I absolutely am." And so he's like, no way. And he's like, oh, yeah, man, believe it. And the guy's like, that's crazy. He's like, it is crazy. And just so you know, like, this is Stephen Furtick. We have a picture of him side by side. The guy on the right is Stephen Furtick. The guy on the left is my buddy, Johnny B. And so he's coming and he's talking to the guy. And he's like, what are you doing here? And he's like, I'm speaking at chapel. He's like, really? He's like, yeah. And so he walks on and he's like, oh, I can't leave it like that. And he went back and he told the guy the truth. But it was, it was just this funny thing of mistaken identity. Now imagine what he could have done. Every conversation that he could have had, he could have been a jerk to that guy and he'd be thinking, man, Stephen Furtick is not a good guy. You know, because he'd be misrepresenting somebody else, somebody that he wasn't. Now it's interesting in social media, this is actually way easier to do, whether you've gotten a, a Facebook request or an Instagram request or, or Twitter accounts that have been started that have kind of reached out to you and said, I am this person, and I either want to add you as a friend or I want to communicate with you, or they start saying something, you say, wait, is this really them? And the more famous you are, right, the more imposters kind of come in and try to take advantage. So what they've done on social media is they've actually created something uh, to double-check and verify that this is the person that you think it is. And an Instagram verification means establishing your Instagram account as the authentic presence of a notable public figure, celebrity, or global brand. An Instagram verified account gets a verified badge. It's a blue seal with a little check mark that appears next to your username. So it'd say, Andrew Beerline, check. Right? This is what it means to be verified. And so as we talk about this, um, one of the things that we wanted to look at is, what does it look like to know the real Jesus? See, I think a lot of us have gotten a lot of uh, wrong ideas in our head about who Jesus is and how he acts, what he's like, who he is. Um, there's a lot of different people who have kind of gotten on board with some of the things that Jesus says. They're excited about Jesus as the person who teaches us to love, even to love our enemies. We're excited about the Jesus who teaches us to forgive, not just once or twice, but over and over because we have been forgiven much. We get excited about these things, but we kind of lose sight of who Jesus is kind of in this bigger way. Instead, we kind of ad adopt this way that everybody feels comfortable with. And so people of many different faiths would say, hey, Jesus was a great religious leader. Most people don't agree or don't disagree that Jesus was a historical person. There is evidence 
to the point. But where they do differ is who Jesus actually was. Was he simply a good teacher? Was he a prophet? Or was he who he said he was, the actual son of God? And so in Luke chapter 1, Luke actually kind of tells us why he's writing this. And so if you want to turn over to Luke, we're kind of going to kickstart this sermon this way. As we look through this series, Jesus verified, we're kind of asking the question, okay, well, who is Jesus really? And so we're going to be exploring the scriptures for the next seven weeks to kind of get a sense of who the real Jesus is. We don't just want to be duped. We don't want to fall for a lookalike. We don't want to buy into something that is not Jesus. And so we're going back to the source. And this is exactly what Luke, what his purpose is in writing this. So in Luke chapter 1, verse 1, he tells us why he wrote. He says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. And so he's saying, hey, listen, we've believed stories. We've talked to eyewitnesses. And even Luke, his account here, he is a doctor by trade. He had one of the most expansive vocabularies that you're going to see from an author in the New Testament writings. And what he did is he went and said, tell me, you knew Jesus, right? And yet, they were people who were verified that had seen and experienced Jesus, that were followers of Jesus. And he said, will you tell me about your experience? And he tells us why he did this. He says in verse 3, with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. In other words, you've heard some things about Christ, but how do I know if it's true? You've heard some things about Jesus, but how do I know what to believe? I want to get my head on straight about this. So he says, I looked into it, I explored it, and I want you to know who Jesus really is. And so for the next seven weeks, that's going to be our entire focus as we pursue this series, is getting to know the real Jesus. We're going to take it kind of attribute by attribute. And so this is going to come off a little bit more topical, a little bit less like our Colossians series, which went straight through the book. This is going to be focused on kind of the character and attributes of Jesus, what he's like and getting to know him from Scripture. And today we're going to be talking about this very significant reality that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. And this is so important for us to grasp. Because this is the thing that distinguishes Christianity from literally every other faith. Like I said, there are many people who believe that Jesus was a good teacher. They have no problem with that. Even people who aren't religious, people who are atheists can still say, hey, I like some of the teachings of Jesus. He seemed like a cool guy. Some people go further. And even in Islam, Muslims believe that Jesus was a prophet. So to say, hey, Jesus was a prophet. He was someone sent by God. This is not unique to Christianity. Where the departure takes place, and even in Jehovah's Witness, again, they believe he has a prophetic voice. But in Christianity, it uniquely believes that Jesus is God. And so in holding with this idea, it is not to get confused and say that Jesus is the Father, or that Jesus is the Holy Spirit, or that he's one guy putting on three hats. It's very important to understand that in Christian theology, what we believe is in a triune God, that we serve one God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
They all exist from eternity past into eternity future. You see, all of us were created to be eternal. All of us were created to go on existing forever. That when we would close our eyes on this mortal coil, we would open our eyes into an everlasting life, either in judgments or in heaven. We were created to be eternal, but God exists from eternity past. He is one who has never had a beginning. There is nothing that existed before God. And Jesus is God. If you would go ahead and flip a couple chapters forward to Luke chapter 8, this is going to kind of be the grounding source material for our sermon here. And it's a recounting of an interesting point. Jesus has been active in ministry for a little while. He's got his disciples around him. He's teaching, proclaiming the kingdom of God. And at one point in time, he says, hey, guys, we're going to get on a boat and we're going to cross this lake and go over to the other side. And in the middle of it, there's kind of this huge storm that takes place. And this is the account of that story. And so in Luke chapter 8, verse 22, He says, one day Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and they set out as they sailed. He fell asleep. Jesus fell asleep on the boat and a squall or a storm came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. Literally what's happened is that the winds are picking up speed as they're coming down the slope and they're making their way over a lake. And this has turned from uh, a rather safe experience. Everything was calm and instantly things have become very tumultuous, right? With the wind, the waves are, are kind of pushing over and Jesus is sleeping. And it's kind of this strange moment because everybody else who is awake is like, this is it. We're going to die. And Jesus is staying asleep. Now, some of you, you will have no way to identify with this. You are the kind of people that when there are some of you, when there's someone else who's walking down the hall, you hear those footsteps and you wake up and you're like, what's that? I'm wide awake now. You hear everything and you sleep so softly. Some of you, that's you. And then there are others of you here in this room who are like, yeah, I know exactly what Jesus is going through. I sleep like the dead. Okay, like seriously, if you were asleep, the house was on fire and people were jumping up and down on top of you to wake you up, you would stay asleep, right? This is kind of what's going on here. Jesus is literally getting splashed with water. The waves are coming. The whole boat is rocking on the verge of tipping over. They're about to be capsized and they're filling with water, and everybody is like, we are going to die. And so they have their perspective of Jesus. The disciples at this point have chosen to follow Jesus. They have given up their livelihood. Some of the disciples were fishermen. He said, come follow me. They laid down their nets, and they said, we're fishermen no more. Some of them had jobs. At least one of them was a tax collector. And he was presently at his table collecting taxes for Rome. And Jesus said, come follow me. He left all of that to follow Jesus. They had some conceptualization that this was the right thing to do. They believed that Jesus was a prophetic figure and they believed he was sent from God. And as they were getting to know him and understand him, they kind of said, yeah, I think I know what Jesus is about. And who would know him on earth? better than his disciples. And yet in their conceptualization of God, there were limitations, right? Like whatever Jesus is, he is capable of drowning just like the rest of us. 
However great God is, there are these limitations. However great Jesus is, there are these limitations surrounding him that when they're going through this, they start to freak out. And it says in verse 24, the disciples went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. And so it seems a little bit like a courtesy wake up, right? Like the waves are coming in and it's a little bit ironic because Jesus is soaked and they're like, hey, Jesus, so there's a storm. And as he's like, there have been loud howling winds, waves pouring over. The whole thing is rocking tumultuously. And they're like, hey, yeah, just wanted to wake you up before we drown. So we are going to drown, but we thought we'd at least wake you up. If we have to make a swim for it, at least you'll have a fighting chance. This is all that's going on. They're freaked out. Master, we're going to drown. And Jesus does the weirdest things he could have possibly done. He doesn't go into like leadership mode. Like, I don't know if you've thought of Jesus as like a great leader. If I was there, I'd be like, all right, guys, here's what we're going to do. You three, I want you to tie, you know, the rope around your waist and, and you know, tie it to the boat. And then we're going to start bailing water like crazy. You four, you're going to paddle like nuts. We're getting to the other side of this thing. Like, come on, we're going to fight the storm. Let's go. Right. Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't offer commands. He doesn't say, hey, everybody, you know, grab something that floats and hope for the best. Jesus doesn't do that. What he doesn't said is radical. They could not conceive of it. They didn't understand it. And I think we kind of get limited here, too. It says he got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters and the storm subsided and all was calm. Now, I want you to understand what this means. It says Jesus rebuked the wind. Now, this is interesting. A rebuke is to let something know that it's doing the wrong thing. Like rebuking people makes sense. Rebuking little kids is kind of, I don't know, it's all we get as parents some days. <laughs> it's like, hey, quit, quit hitting your brother. That's a rebuke. You're doing the wrong thing. Stop it. Do something better. Hey, no, you can't throw the soccer ball at the lamp. Uh, you can't do that. This is a rebuke. Stop and alter your behavior. That's what's going on. So I want you to picture, if you can, a moment where you as a parent or you've seen another parent look at a household of rowdy kids and call into it and rebuke them. What are you doing in here? Knock it off. Boom. Instantaneously, they stop. Probably if they were like I was as a child, they run right for their life. Like, ah, oh, we're caught. Get out of here. Right. But it's that kind of thing. The children are rebuked and then they change their behavior. They can't go on. They can't continue. And this is the kind of thing that's happening here. It says Jesus rebuked the wind. And so if Jesus had just been like, you know, no, like kind of Matrix style Neo to the wind and it stopped, you'd be like, all right, well, cool. Superpowers. But he's literally talking to the wind and he's like, will you stop? He gets up, he looks at the wind, it's about to flip him over, waves are crashing in, knock it off. Wind, stop. Don't do that anymore. And I don't know how he said it, right? But I assume it wasn't like, he didn't lose his identity, he knew who he was. They're like, we're in danger because they didn't get it, but he didn't lose sight of who he was in the world. And so when he said, wind, stop, he didn't say like, wind, I hope you stop. He just said, knock it off. He rebuked the wind and the wind quit doing what it was doing. Literally, the storm subsided. 
Now, some of us, we pray like this, right? If you've ever been in a really bad storm, a thunderstorm, a tornado, and you're like, Lord, please let it pass by. Slow the wind down, God. And when things are really bad and then they downgrade to just bad, we're like, thank you, God, you've heard our prayers. This is interesting, though. Jesus says, wind, stop. In other passages, wind, be still. And everything, the word here is calm. It went from the blustering storm to calm. And that's freaky, right? That's strange. If you've ever been in a situation that was horrifying and then was instantly calm, you're like, there is something that feels off about this. Something has happened. And Jesus asked them this question in the midst of the calm. They're no longer screaming. Some of them, I imagine Peter has jumped off the boat and is swimming towards shore at this point. And he's like, oh, I guess I'll come back to the boat. I don't know. We're not told. But everything gets calm. And Jesus asked them this this brief question. He says, where is your faith? Now, I want you to hear this differently because some of us, we look inside our own souls and we say, man, how much faith do I really have? Where is your faith? I think he's asking a different question here than how we're interpreting it. It's not what is the degree of your faith? I think he's actually asking them, do you understand who I am? Do you know me? Literally what's going on is there's this whole huge storm. And in their mind, they thought, oh, man, Jesus is here, but he's asleep. Everything's going on and we're going to die. And Jesus is saying, man, don't you know who I am? Don't you know? I've been telling you, we've been spending time together. I'm God. Like, you don't have to worry about this. Oh, no, the wind. He's like, what? Where do you think that came from? Are you really concerned about this? When he says, where is your faith? He's saying, don't you know me? And almost to prove the point, in fear and amazement, they cannot believe what they've just seen. They begin to ask one another this question in English, three small words. Who is this? Who is this? They don't get it. Like everything they thought about Jesus just changed. Everything they thought about Jesus just went from, yeah, yeah, we know Jesus. We know who he is. We get it. Yeah, yeah, we've been with Jesus for a while. We followed him. We've taught with him. You know what? We've hung out with people. We've seen some miracles. We know all this stuff. But when they saw this, they went, man, I'm not sure we know Jesus at all. And there's some of us here in this place that we need that kind of disruption. Because the way that we've been approaching Jesus has taken something away from the reality of his nature. And some of us were wrestling and we're kind of looking at Jesus and we say, yeah, yeah, I know Jesus. He's like this. And he's like, no, that's part of it, right? But that's, that's not who I am. And I think some of us, those who have tasted and seen the goodness of God, it's kind of blown us away in some capacities. And we've gone, man, God is other. God is bigger. God is, is different than I thought. Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. All of a sudden, their perception of Jesus went from like a really good guy, a prophet, a teacher, a religious leader, to all of a sudden, there's like this this new thing in their brain, like, holy cow, Jesus is, is bigger than I thought. And so there's two things that we need to navigate this a little bit. And they're the theological concepts of imminence and transcendence. And so imminence speaks of the closeness of God, transcendence, his otherness, his distance, his glory. And so 
We'll start with imminence. Somebody say imminence. This is important for you to get. This is the nearness of God. The literal meaning of the imminence of God is to be within or near in relation to God's creation. This is so important. In the imminence of God, this is everything that brings Jesus close. This is everything that, that, that brings God near to us. Okay? When we talk about God doing miracles, I prayed God answered. That's his imminence. When God looked at someone and he cared about them and there was something in his heart of compassion, that's imminence. When we hear like kind of, uh, you know, this, this whole narrative of the cross and God seeing us in our sin and Jesus coming into the world to be born as a man and then dying in our place, that's imminence, that's nearness, that's closeness. And so some of us, we've kind of gotten used to Jesus in this close kind of friendship capacity. He knows me. He gets me, right? And he loves me. He loves me. No matter what I do, somehow he still loves me. There's imminence. In fact, sometimes the imminence of God, it gets a little bit too close. It gets like freaky close. It gets like almost stalker close. Like in the Bible, it says that God knows the number of hairs on your head. Like that's almost too close. Like, God, can I get a little space, please? Like, like he could go around and be like, hey, uh, 142,312, right? Like he could just rattle that off and you'd be like, I don't need that information. That doesn't seem important to me. That he could go around, it says our days are numbered. God is intimately aware of how long you're going to live, as though he could go around the room and be like 27,312 days. You know, like he could call it out and you're like, whoa, whoa, God, that's really close. And some of us, we really like the, the imminence of God. We like to focus on this. And it's an important thing, right? Because the closeness of God, it speaks of this personal relationship. It speaks that we can know him, that he can be known, and in fact, that he values us. The opposite of imminence, to understand God not as being close, is to get into something that's called deism. And deism basically is the understanding that God created everything, set up an ordered structure to the universe, and then he took a step back to watch how it would all play out. In this notion, there's no bother praying. There's no bother kind of reaching out to God because God doesn't really get involved. In fact, anytime we talk of the miraculous, or we understand that prayer can do anything to turn the heart of God. We are by nature talking about imminence. This is the closeness. This is where love comes from. This is where the knowing comes from, imminence. But there is something else that's at work here, transcendence. Someone say transcendence. The transcendence of God is closely related to his sovereignty. It means that God is above, other than, and distinct from all he has made. He transcends it all. Now, this is very important to understand because this is what brings us the sense of God's glory. It's the sense of his otherness that in a way, Jesus in his imminence came really close. In fact, in Jesus, we find God putting on flesh and coming near to us, being born, having a childhood, all of that stuff. And you could say, I remember, you know, having this kind of experience and my dad used to do this and he would have stories like that. And you're like, man, I'm just so grateful for Jesus. He gets me. He can relate. We can connect. Right. But he's also transcendent. And in his transcendence, it's to understand that although Jesus did exist in this world for a short period of time, he existed in eternity past before that. It's to understand that Jesus wasn't just a good guy. And if I asked you all to think like, who is the nicest person, you know, go ahead and think about that for a minute. Who is the nicest person, you know, 
who is the very kindest person, the kind of person that you're like, man, I bet they never had a bad day in their life. Every time you see them, they've got a smile on their face. They're happy to see you. They're just generally kind. And you're like, something is wrong with them. They're almost too kind, right? Like you feel that you probably think of that person, right? Now, even that person, imagine it. If I were to ask you, is that person perfect? Would any part of you be confused? Would any part of you go, you know what they might be? No. In fact, even the best person that we could possibly conceive of, right, is someone who has good days and bad days, who's flawed at times, and sometimes the reasoning is off. In Jesus, that is not the case. He is perfect. He is morally unflawed. He is one incapable of doing evil in any capacity. And so everything Jesus did was utterly and completely other. He has existed from eternity past and will exist into eternity future. He is set apart from all of creation. He is the one active in sustaining all that exists. All of us, we depend upon Jesus in order to be. Jesus does not. He is uniquely set apart in this capacity as God and that he needs nothing else. If you fail to eat for a number of days, however great or small that number may be, eventually you will die. If you do not drink the same result, you're dependent on any number of things just to live. Jesus is not. The transcendence of God is what leads us to this kind of sense of awe, this sense of glory. In imminence, we say Jesus is my friend. He's close. He's intimate. He cares about me. But if we lose sight of transcendence, then we lose our sense of awe and wonder. Our sense that as we come to the God of the Bible, that it shouldn't just be treated flippantly. The sense in which we would start to look at this and hold it aloft and say, man, this book is significant that God cared enough to speak into my life, that he cared enough to speak and help us as human beings to know who he is. It leads us to awe. It leads us to say, God, truly you are great. Truly you are different. Truly you are other. When it speaks of his unchanging nature, we can easily contrast with the number of people who have told us one thing and proven themselves false time and time again. Although people in this world will betray you, let you down, not show up as good as they promised, God never will. He is utterly other, utterly perfect, full of glory, holiness, perfection. It's easy in some sense to get the idea of God the Father being transcendent as Yahweh in the Old Testament. We say he really seemed to care about these things. He really seemed to care about the law and perfection and holiness and glory. And in the New Testament, we kind of look at Jesus and say, you know what? He just seems to be so full of grace and forgiveness. He just doesn't care about that stuff anymore. But Jesus is God. His character has not waned. It has not changed has not moved. He continues to be himself. We simply see it operating in a different mode, that his imminence, his closeness, and his transcendence, his otherness are working hand in hand in order to bring us actually into his glory. But it has not robbed him of it. He is utterly and completely transcendent. And so this is really important to get because as we approach Jesus, some of us... Um, some of us, we just don't have the right perspective on this. Some of us, we need to question this again, just like the disciples and say, man, who is this? Because we've grabbed onto some notions and ideals that are just, they're way off from true. 
In fact, there was a guy, I was, I was doing a little bit of research on this, and I, I know there's a number of people who think this way, but there was a guy who had been a Christian for all of his young life, and he'd always wondered at God becoming man, and he said, this is incredible, that in Jesus, God became man. He says, how does that work? What does that even look like? And then in the latter part of his life, he began to think, and he actually wrote a book at this. He says, the more I read the Bible, the more I ask this question, how in the world did we ever get to the place of Jesus becoming God? And he actually believed that if you were to read the Bible cover to cover and actually pay attention to what was going on, that Jesus never claims to be God at all. And in fact, no one that the right biblical stance is to understand that his disciples did not believe that he was God, that the people around him did not believe that he was God, that Jesus himself did not believe he was God. And so he asked the question, how did we get there? How did we get to the place where we ever believed for a moment that Jesus was God? And undoubtedly, someone at some point in your life is going to come either knocking at your door or some other capacity and will question, why do you believe that Jesus is God? And you might start to scratch your head and say, well, I don't know. And some of us have said, is that really true? How do we make sense of this? Who is Jesus really? And so we're going to spend the rest of our time kind of jumping through scriptures. And I want you to see this clearly and decisively that Jesus is God. If you're a note taker, feel free to write these things down as we go. I would invite you to follow along in the text, but we're going to be jumping fairly quickly. So you might want to write the reference and come back to it later. Is Jesus ever referred to as God in scripture? Philippians 2, 5 through 6 this counsel is that in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. In other words, when Jesus, who was God, came and put on human flesh, he did not demand to be treated like God. Instead, he was willing to come and suffer and die on the cross for our sins. But he was in very nature God and never was that absent from him. Never did he cease being God. In Hebrews chapter one and verse three, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. I want you to hear this well. The sun, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory. The manifest glory of God is covering Jesus and the exact, this word is important, the exact representation of his being. In the person of Jesus Christ, we find that God who is spirit is made tangible, physical, visible, has flesh, can be felt, can be touched, but is in every way the exact representation of God. This cannot be said of a replica. A replica is not an exact representation. It is different if only in the fact that its physical matter is different. If you can hold them side by side and say, in one hand, I have this, and in another, I have this, they are not exactly the same. And so what we find in Jesus is not that he is like God or a replica of God or like God, except diminished in these capacities. What we find instead is that scripture says he is the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. In other words, Jesus is active in keeping things around. Is Jesus ever referred to as God in Scripture? John 1.18. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God. 
and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. It is impossible to look at these verses and say, you know, I don't think Scripture even kind of backs up this claim that Jesus is God, and these aren't the only ones. Is Jesus ever referred to as God in Scriptures by his followers? They've said his followers never believed, never believed that Jesus was in fact God. This cannot possibly be the case. Even the greatest of the doubters, the one who is known for it, you know, I bet Thomas did other things in his life. I bet he made an incredible, you know, steak or a salad. I mean, I don't know. I bet he did things. Maybe he was a painter or a singer. And for a while, he was known as Thomas the architect. I don't know. But for us, he's always going to be known as Thomas the doubter. Kind of a bum name to be grabbed onto. But it's because of this that all of them had this view of Jesus. And they said, we think we know who he is. And they began to believe that he was the Messiah. And they believed that the Messiah would be the one who would displace Rome who would conquer back the land that was promised to them by God, to their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that the Messiah would sit upon the throne of King David and rule on it forever. And so when they saw this, there was a great surprise. There was kind of this this misunderstanding of of whether or not their, their understanding of Jesus even made sense anymore when they watched Jesus go to a cross and die. And they said, surely we must be wrong. Jesus cannot possibly be who we think he is. And so some of them came back and said, no, no, you don't understand. Jesus has risen from the dead. We've seen him. And he said, are you sure? Maybe it was just someone who looked a lot like Jesus. And he doubted and he wondered. And he said, no, no, no. Don't you believe that Jesus is who he said he was? And, you know, maybe he said, you know, I'd like to, but I just can't. I can't wrap my mind around it. If he really was who he said he was, then why is he dead? And he said, well, wouldn't you have to say that if he was still alive, if he had resurrected from the dead, wouldn't you have to say then that Jesus is who he said he was? And perhaps Thomas even relented and said, fine, yes, I will believe that Jesus is who he said he was if I get to see him. But I want to put my hands, right, my fingers in the holes in his hands. I want to touch his side. I want to know without a doubt in my mind that this is Jesus And so this is exactly what happens. John chapter 20, verse 25. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, put my hand to his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it to my side. Stop doubting and believe. And this incredible response by Thomas the doubter. He sees Jesus. And he understands the magnitude of the situation and the person who had doubted and wondered, who is this Jesus? What is he like? He understood that some people live for a while and then they die. But he sees Jesus resurrected from the dead, alive and well. And he simply responds, my Lord and my God. Was Jesus ever called deity by his followers? Unequivocally, yes. Does Jesus ever claim to be God, though? Even if we said that other scriptures pointed to Jesus being God and even his followers acknowledged that he was God, does Jesus ever claim to be God? Well, in John chapter 14, verse 9, he says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. To see me is to see him. 
Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. John 14, 11. John 10, 30, he makes it abundantly clear. I and the Father are one. Now, somebody might say, well, he meant that more metaphorically. You know, he really didn't mean that in this way. Well, let's go ahead and take a look at how people responded to the claims that he was making that we would say is okay and metaphorical. Let's take a look. How did other people interpret and understand this? In John chapter 10 and verse 33, after Jesus says, I and the Father are one, they say, hey, man, we're going to stone you. And he says, why? You know, for which of my good deeds are you about to stone me? And they say this in 33. He says, we're not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claimed to be God. Now, this is an interesting thing. The term blasphemy means to claim deity. Do you know the only person who could never be blaspheming? Do you know who that would be? It'd have to be God. And so every other person who says, I'm God, I'm worthy of worship. I and God are one. To say that, they would say, no, no, we have a term for that. It's blasphemy. It's crazy. It's wrong. It's irreligious. It's irresponsible. You, sir, have merited for yourself a punishment of death. Why blasphemy? You claim to be God. The only person who could claim to be God and not be blaspheming would be God. That's it. That's the only person. So when they hear Jesus speaking and saying, I and the Father are one, they say, let's stone this guy. And this is not the first. It won't be the last time this happens. Because he claims to be God. They say it right there at the end. Because you, a mere man, claim to be God. In John chapter 5 and verse 18 It says, for this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, if you see a guy out doing miracles in this particular case, he heals someone who has been lame for a long time. And he says, take up your mat and walk. And he does. And he says, how can you do that on the Sabbath when God tells us not to do any work on the Sabbath? He's like, are you kidding me? Like, you got this whole thing twisted around. He says, no, no, no. You see, God doesn't work like that. And he starts to talk about forgiveness of sins. And he says, who are you to forgive? He says, well, what's harder? To forgive sins or to tell someone, get up and walk. But so that you know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. He tells the guy, get up, walk, and he does. He is doing these incredible things that only God can do. And everybody is left wondering and saying, we must be wrong about Jesus. Now, this is so important because if we get it, if we really begin to understand it, if we can conceive of this in our minds, that Jesus is God. That means that when Jesus went to the cross, this is God seeing us in our sins. He who created everything. In fact, this is the narrative of John chapter 1. He who created everything came and made his dwelling among us but his own did not receive him. They rejected Jesus. They said, no, 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 we don't know you. And they put him to death on a cross. And the wrongness of this, it should rattle us, right? Because Jesus isn't just a prophet sent by God. He is God himself, the creator and originator of earth. He is God, the one who has formed and loved. And so he comes to the cross and it is God himself who lays down his life for sinners. 
This is the language of Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. This is the hope that we have. This is the hope that we have. If you've ever conceived of God and said, God must be tired of me. How many times have I failed and asked for forgiveness and failed again? How many times have I blown it? How many times have I messed up? How many times have I done this stuff the wrong way? How many times have I utterly ruined what was supposed to go right? God's got to be sick of me by now. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to who found themselves hopeless and said, you know what? I just I find it hard to believe that God could still love me. And the beauty and the reality of this God that we serve is that he is the God who saw the distance between us and he stepped in. This is the God that we serve, not that he would demand justice from others, but that he redeeming justice would go and pay the price for us with his own life. And so he proves in the resurrection the authority of Jesus unquestionable. For those who might have doubted and said, well, how could he be who he said he was if he died? He proves that the God of life is very much alive, that death has no jurisdiction over him, that God is the creator and sustainer of all things, and that Jesus is exactly who he says he was. It is this resurrected Jesus, this one who is affirmed both by miracles and by resurrection, who is active in creation, according to Colossians 1, 16 and 17, in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers, rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him, all things hold together. He's also the one who is reconciling, the one who is redeeming, the one who is doing this unique work of God, the thing that only God can do. Is he saying, let me repair what is broken between us. And in Colossians 1, 19 through 20. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus is God. It's very important that we understand this because as we get lost in this perspective, there is a temptation generation after generation, culture after culture to abandon a right understanding of who Jesus is and to kind of simplify things, to eliminate it down to an ideal. Does it really matter what you believe as long as you're kind to others? Does it really matter what you believe as long as you're loving and forgiving and moral and just and right? But can I tell you, who defines love? Who defines moral or justice? Or righteousness. If we abandon this mentality of who Jesus is, if we lose sight of this and we begin to wash away everything that seems untenable, then it's just one step further down the abstraction, running away from the God who is. It's as though we're saying it really doesn't matter, right? I really don't need to know you as long as you're still giving me what I want in the moment. But think about how this affects your life. How many of us, just like these guys in the boat, go through the problems of life, and when they happen, we freak out. We absolutely lose our stuff. 
We lose our minds and we say, man, life is hard. The burdens have piled up. It's gotten too real. The storm is too much to handle. Jesus, I don't think you understand here. Jesus, what's going on in my life? And you begin to freak out. And instead of praying, believing in faith, all you can do is flounder in fear. Why? Because you don't know who Jesus is. We have ceased our prayers. We have ceased to believe in the reality of God's work. And so instead of calling the lame to walk, we say, God, work miraculously through the doctors so that in some way something might possibly get better. And then when the test report comes back incrementally better, we say, look, see that God is at work. It leads us to a prayer life that is muted and dull because we are unwilling to ask the impossible of God because we are unwilling to believe that he can follow through. We do not know who he is. So his question, where is your faith? It's his question, do you know who I am? Do you understand who I am? We've become a people who have made God so small that he could walk with us through our daily lives and lost sight of the God who is active in redeeming the world. The God who is capable of restoring any individual, any people group, who is still capable of the miraculous, who is still presently sustaining creation. This is God. And if we could recapture this in our understanding, it would change the way that we pray. It would change the way that we live. It would change the way that we understand who God is. Because some of us, we have separated unintentionally and divided the good man of Jesus to the impossible taskmaster of God. And this unhealthy separation has led us into a dualism that is crippling our Christianity. It has looked at God, and some have already labeled this. In academic circles, they begin to talk of God and call it patricide. How loving could it be of a father to murder his son for the sake of the world? It is to misunderstand. It is to call the father God and see the son as some helpless pawn laid out upon the table. And in this way, although Abraham and Isaac are an interesting representation of what takes place in a foreshadowing of Jesus, it is imperfect in that the Son exists eternally in the Godhead with the Father. And so it is not simply Jesus saying, you know what? I don't want to do it, but because you tell me to, I will. Some have pointed to the garden in this capacity. But it was Jesus who willfully stepped forward. It is Jesus who intentionally moved into harm's way in order to redeem. And so if you have wondered, if you have wondered in your mind what compelled the heart of Jesus, it was not purely faithfulness to a father. It lived exactly in unity, father, son, and Holy Spirit endeavoring to redeem what was lost. This is the beauty of the gospel. Is a God who is not just waiting to count your sins against you. That some of us have looked at God as the disappointed father who has said, you're not worthy, you're not valuable, you don't matter. Look how you've blown it. Look how you've messed up. And I got to confess, all of us in our human capacity were limited in this way. And I feel like even as I remember just the other day, my wife and I have recently switched comforters on our bed. This seems stupid and small, right? But we did. So we have a new comforter there, and our old comforter, which is still plenty nice, was put away in the closet. My son had a sleepover, and a friend comes by. In the middle of the night, he had decided to look for an extra blanket for his friend, and when he pulled our comforter out, 
this one that had been our comforter until just recently on our bed. There's this weird emotional attachment. It got caught in there, and it tore. And so he tore this nice comforter, and I looked at him, and he says, Dad, I'm so sorry. And I was like, well, what happened? And he explained it to me. And I said, I wish you would have been more careful. I said, I wish you wouldn't have done that. I specifically asked you if you needed anything for your bedding. And I began to pile up this thing. And I felt the weight of it going in the wrong direction. But he woke me up, and I'm not really the best when I'm sleeping. Thank God he never sleeps. And I felt this weight beginning to be put on my son's shoulders, and he began to tear up. He says, I'm so sorry, Dad. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, Dad. And once again, like like this path that I just couldn't get away from, I said, I just really wish you would have asked for help. Just another burden on him. I kind of caught myself at that moment. And I'd love to say I redeemed everything, but I didn't. I just took him in and I said, it's okay, son. It doesn't matter. It's fine. I know you didn't do it on purpose. It's okay. Go ahead and go to bed. One o'clock in the morning, that was all the pep talk I had in me. But I reflected on it later and I thought, man, what kind of father am I? Right? And that's, that's not to say that's the worst thing I've ever done. I've done worse. That just kind of happened recently. And we look at this stuff and you go, man, I'm, I'm really not the kind of person that I want to be. And sometimes we project that onto God. Right? Like God is that way. And so as I come back to my son, I can't help but say, man, sometimes I get it right, son, and sometimes I completely blow it. Sometimes I just kind of pile on, and you come apologetically bringing to me what you've done wrong. He didn't hide it. He didn't try to cover it up. He brought it to me. And instead, I just kind of piled on this burden. Thank God God never does that. Instead, what we find in God is this God who's constantly pursuing, constantly redeeming, constantly restoring. It's not to say he doesn't hold us accountable for our actions. He says, yeah, that is sin. Yeah, that is bad. Yeah, sin is the worst. But guess what? I've made a way for you to be reconciled to me. You see, some of us, this problem that we have in seeing Jesus is we keep projecting our failed human experiences. And I fear about this stuff. I worry about it that my son is going to remember. Hey, you remember that time I woke up at one o'clock and I woke you up at one o'clock in the morning and I brought you the blanket? Is God like that? And I don't want him to think that. I want him to think that God is the one that when he brings him his problems is going to say, I know it's okay. I love you. And it changes the way I think about what kind of father I'm going to be to see how this begins to shift our perspective. But if we lose sight of Jesus, if we lose sight of the reality of who God is, then our whole Christianity shifts with it. And instead of understanding Jesus, what we begin to do is set up a straw man of Jesus and we walk away from it because it's so ugly. Guys, the imperfect Jesus is so flawed that it seems meaningless. That maybe some of the things we put in Jesus place is this wrong perspective that he's the genie that answers all my wishes. And when he doesn't, he's not good enough to be God anymore. That he's this person that as long as I follow Jesus, nothing bad will ever happen and I'll never have to deal with death and health crises. And if I just had more faith, then everything would be fine. And instead, what we find day after day is the wrestling and the suffering and the pain. We go, God, where are you? But if we understand this, if we get it right, then we understand that God is the one who walks into pain with us and for us. We understand that God is the one who is redeeming and restoring And that just the same way he moved into the world in order to pursue you now, I got to believe there's some people in here who are asking the questions and just like the disciples are looking at Jesus and just going, man, who is this? And I dare you over the next seven weeks to ask this question. This is a great series 
to bring people who are questioning about Jesus to begin to review your ideas and say, man, do I really get it? Do I really understand who he was? And let it shift, let it change as we bring it into account with Scripture. And so I want to do this now. I want to ask you to stand. Will you stand with me? And in a moment, we're going to take communion. And I want you perhaps for the first time to think about this, not just as your Savior, not just as the one who paid for your redemption, but I want you to think that God... God who is worthy of all glory, God who is worthy of all splendor and praise, God who is full of perfection and glory and moral uprightness, God who has never done anything wrong, God who is creator, sustainer, builder, protector, lover, God. At one point in time, he saw you in your sin. And he came into this world, was mocked, ridiculed, and died in your place. God. As we take communion, we remember his body broken, his blood poured out, that redemption had a cost. And so what I want to ask you to do is this, just prepare your heart. And if there's anything separating you from God, that now you would make it right. That now you would respond. Perhaps there's some of you who have stood far away and you've said, man, God, do you even care? Reconsider. God, where are you? Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you for the gift that you have given us in salvation. Thank you that you have loved us enough to move, to act. It's not to the detriment of the Father your plan was unified, not to the detriment of the Holy Spirit. We understand there is unity here. But God, so many times we reduce Jesus. We make him smaller and we see in this a willful action of God, the one who created, working on behalf of creation to restore and redeem it. And we thank you, Father. We thank you, Son. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for the work that you are doing in redeeming us. And that, God, all of us have a story that we once were, were far from you, separated, distanced by our sin. And you said, I can overcome that. And you pursued us. Perhaps there's some who are still warring and still being pursued now. I pray that they would hear this well, that your love is continuing to come after them. And God, I pray that you would meet them in this place. You would remind them of your imminence, your nearness, and your glory. God, we ask this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.